Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in London, I think, right? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. I'm sorry. You said Britain, and I assumed London. That's my mistake. You did not say England. That would have been a mistake, but... Uh... No, for the book festival. Okay, this is not the Fringe Festival, right? This is not—it's not like a theatre. F- yeah, it's, it's the a- same. It's part oh, of that. Okay, it's part of that whole complex. Okay, yeah. I, I, maybe it's, you got me thinking you might be doing a one-man show in Edinburgh or something. But uh. <laughs> stand up, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you—you you heard it here first. No, it's, if, it's all very worthy Adam stuff. Adam Two's yeah. uh, stand-up routine right now. Um, That's right. Live in Edinburgh, but world economy drunk. <laughs> um, anyway, um, we will be talking about post-war reconstruction in uh, Ukraine and elsewhere in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to be talking about something from the news, and that is the data point seven hundred thirty-nine. That is seven hundred thirty-nine billion dollars. That is the amount of money that is going to be raised by the Inflation Reduction Act. You're right. Big win for the president, the White House, congressional Democrats. Much, much bigger win for the American people. That's really where the inflation... There are three pillars of the Inflation Reduction Act, health care, energy, and tax reform. But inflation relief for the average person won't be coming anytime soon. According to 10 News... You think that this may be one of the best packages that you can remember Congress giving birth to. So you think this is a good idea for the country. What does it mean for investors? I think for investors... It's- 369 billion of those dollars are going to go towards investments in fighting climate change. It's a landmark climate bill for the United States, the largest of its kind, but it's, but it's not only that, it also spends money on health care and also on deficit reduction. So obviously there was no way we were not going to address this. It's a major piece of economic legislation for the Biden administration. And so, yeah, here we are. Adam, I guess I wanted to start by pointing out that this sort of package of climate, tax, health care provisions It was on the verge of death multiple times. And then the sort of decisive vote, Senator Manchin from uh, West Virginia, he surprised everyone by sort of finally agreeing to it out of nowhere. So what exactly happened behind the scenes here? I mean, who was responsible for saving this bill? And, And really, who has the power to save this kind of thing in the context of the U.S. economy? Yeah, it's really a, a, an astonishing, I mean, not to say dumbfounding turn of events. I think um, many observers of the American political scene describe it as, as really one of the most surprising um, sort of roller coasters that, that we've seen in recent decades. Um, and I should admit, um, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, that I was caught out by it as much as anyone. In fact, twice, uh, Joe Manchin has made me 
uh, looked silly. First in, in December 2021, when after months of good faith negotiations with him over the terms of the then much more ambitious um, package, it was really the descendant of Build Back Better, he suddenly at the last minute in, in early December decided he couldn't possibly vote for it. And then he was dragged back to the table in the spring. New negotiations were entered into only for him then on July the 14th to again announce out of the blue, despite all of the concessions that he'd extracted, that he couldn't possibly support anything by the name of Build Back Better with the kind of budget that was then proposed in the order of $2 trillion. And I, along with a whole bunch of other people, wrote essentially obituaries for the Biden administration's political future on the basis of this this double, as it were, uh, veto by, by Manchin. Uh, only for them, him to then overturn this uh, uh, and, and to suddenly decide um, in the last week of, of July that there was a deal that he could vote for. Um, and, and I think the one consolation for you know, a commentator such as myself is that even people incredibly close to this process, I mean, really in the room, in the negotiations, were themselves completely dumbfounded by the turn of events between the 14th of July and the, and the 23rd. Um, the reports of a bust up between Schumer, who's obviously uh, running the Democratic caucus in the Senate and Manchin, uh, are not exaggerated. The reports of staffers weeping in the corridors of, of Congress on the on the 14th of July are again not made up um the, it really did look dead um and i think in a in crucial respect it's important to emphasize that it has in fact remained dead large parts of of the progressive agenda uh, which harnessed together really dramatic welfare spending very progressive taxation um climate politics and infrastructure spending have really not made it through but some bits have and i think that's really what we have to weigh up and understand how this how this happened. I mean, basically what, what transpired is that Manchin was ready to do a deal. Um, he was willing to do a deal on his own terms. Um, once it was the bill was suitably whittled down, once it was rebadged as an inflation-fighting bill rather than a build-back-better high-spending bill, he was ready to sign up. Once it had been larded with all the fossil fuel subsidies that he needed, it, he, he was willing to vote for very large-scale subsidies suitably targeted in his mind to American producers of uh, electric vehicles, he, he, he was willing to give them that vote. And, and key elements of the climate policy have in fact been preserved. That This is not to say that, that that has been given up. It's just that its political packaging, the framing of the, the climate agenda, has been completely changed. So Build Back Better, which was descended from the Green New Deal vision of climate policy, in which climate policy was nested within really large-scale radical stimulus-style, trillion-dollar spending has died. That's no longer what we've ended up with. What we've ended up with which is a package which isn't budgeted at $3 trillion or $2 trillion, but a $700 billion uh, revenue-raising package, which doesn't stimulate the economy, but in fact reduces aggregate demand, but contains at its core a major subsidy for the renewable energy transition. Yeah, let's take a closer look at those climate provisions. Uh, I mean, one thing that jumped out at me is that this climate policy mostly relies on, I guess we could call them carrots, uh, subsidies to incentivize the production of clean energy rather than sticks, right, to kind of disincentivize fossil fuels. In fact, as you mentioned, there are even subsidies for fossil fuels in here. So there is a kind of theory here about how to combat climate change here, but what do you think, Adam? Are carrots sufficient to really stop climate change uh, to the degree that we, we need to? On the balance between subsidies for fossil fuel and subsidy for 
renewables, in other words, the relative size of the carrots and the consequences of that, the, the analysis by various climate research groups is pretty clear cut, which is that the benefit in terms of emissions reduction from the carrots offered to the renewable sector is perhaps as much as 10 times larger than the negative effects that will come from the subsidies for fossil fuels. So on that score, if we're weighing the carrots against each other, you know, the renewable carrots have it. But you're absolutely right. This policy is based on inducement rather than on penalties or tough regulation. It's also, I think, crucial to say that uh, we have to put this in perspective, right? The, the question of saving the climate or stemming climate change is well beyond America's reach at this point. Um, we're not in the 1990s anymore. Uh, in 2020, the last year for which we really have comprehensive figures, the United States contributed less than 13% of global emissions and China's share was over 32%. So whatever America does, whatever policy it adopts, carrots, sticks, regulations, you, you name it, um, it is only a relatively modest part of the, overall, of the overall equation going forward in the coming decades. Addressing climate and driving the energy transition is above all a problem for Asia, in which Western states, the United States, Europe can pay a positive part, but are truly not the decisive factor anymore. Um, and that's the opportunity that we lost in the 1990s for the Europeans and the Americans to really be able to fully lead on that. That's no longer the case as a result of global growth and the extraordinarily fossil fuel intensive quality of Chinese growth. In the rest of the world as well, um, penalties and sticks are being used. So both the Europeans and the Chinese now have carbon pricing mechanisms in place. Um, and so the Chinese one has yet to be developed into a fully-fledged system. But even in its current extent, it, it, it touches a lot because it covers electricity generation in China. Um, it has the potential to, to, to address the largest uh, single component of, of emissions in the entire world. And China doesn't shrink either from using very tough regulations in the form essentially of rationing electricity production and doing load shedding if necessary. So if we are asking the question of whether the overall global climate problem can be addressed through carrots alone, the answer is no, and it's not going to be addressed by America. Um, and in other parts of the world, um, sticks are, and regulation are going to be used. The reason why this is a carrots-only provision is, is essentially the logic of American politics. The American Senate won't wear anything else. Joe Manchin cut down like clean uh, energy regulation that was proposed in 2021. The efforts to pass various types of carbon taxation failed both under the Obama administration and under Clinton. Um, and so right from the very beginning, the Biden administration and its advisors in the climate movement in the US backed very heavily away from that. So one of the, the most controversial aspects of this law, interestingly, has been an increase in funding for the IRS. This is the Internal Revenue Service, basically the, the tax authorities in the United States. And the idea here is that by investing more money in the IRS, that it'll end up raising more money by being able to be better at its job of collecting taxes. This has been, again, very controversial uh, among Republicans specifically. Uh, but I just wanted to sort of burrow down a bit here. I mean, does this increase in funding represent a kind of fundamental change to the IRS's capacity in some way? Or is this just a kind of return to a, a previous condition of, of strength that, that it's lost over time? It's a desperate effort to remediate the damage done to the American tax administration by successive waves of highly political and partisan assault on the IRS from the Republican side. And these began in the 1990s 
um, when Newt Gingrich and the new radicals of the Republican Party took control of Congress uh, during the Clinton administration, they began an incredibly high-profile assault on the American tax authorities. They conducted you know, these extraordinary mafia-style hearings with IRS agents who were urged to disclose malpractice, supposed malpractice by the, the IRS, um, the American tax authorities. Um, that initiated the first round of uh, severe limitations on the ability of the American tax authorities to conduct audits and to really pursue um, largely high-income tax evaders and corporate tax evaders in the United States. And then the second wave really began uh, in Barack Obama's uh, term um, and was directly linked to the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare, because um, it's very tempting for American social reformers to look to the tax system uh, as a vehicle for driving social reform in the United States, because the American federal government has very limited access to its citizens. Um, and one of the administrative structures which does exist to access uh, Americans uh, comprehensively is the tax system, because every American citizen is required, notionally at least, to file taxes every year. And so the Affordable Care Act piggybacked on the IRS administrative system uh, in many of its provisions. And because that was turned into the, you know, the extraordinary political cause celebral that the Republicans tried to turn it into, death panels and so on, from 2011 onwards, when the Republicans seized control of Congress, they began a second wave assault on um, the IRS, which was then compounded by, in 2016 and ongoing with the, the Trump administration, in a, a progressive effort to basically cut the ability of the IRS to conduct audits, to engage in serious uh, efforts to pursue um, the millions of Americans who no longer file, and to engage in really serious forensic work uh, on corporate uh, tax evasion as well. So that we are currently at, an, at, a, at a really dire low ebb. The number of um, f- revenue agents uh, currently at the disposal of the IRS um, uh, is at the level of 1953, uh, when the economy was one-seventh of its current size. And the, po- the politics of this are just flagrant, because we are literally talking about spending money which will generate multiples Uh, of the money spent on the IRS in terms of additional revenue. So we really are talking about tens of billions of dollars which are left lying on the sidewalk. So I guess finally, I guess I was hoping for some historic perspective. How should we be expecting that this law will change the US economy in in a broader sense going forward? I, I mean, does this really mark a shift in a kind of era of the US economy? Are we now approaching an era of industrial policy, you know, where where the relationship between government and investment in industries like renewable energy, etc., are going to be much more pronounced. Is that an effect of this law? I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. Industrial policy is perhaps the new buzzword. Um, we're not in the age of stimulus anymore. We're not really much concerned, we're much less concerned than we were with, you know, the possibilities for quantitative easing and modern monetary theory and those kind of options. The the new the new buzzword of, of policy on both sides of the Atlantic is industrial policy. And the combination of of the spending, the subsidies to renewable energy in this bill, um, the CHIPS uh, and Science Act, which has now in fact been signed into law, which provides, you know, 280 billion on spending for science uh, and uh, $52 billion alone to promote the domestic production of semiconductors in the United States. 
um, is a is a very dramatic step. In fact, the Chips Act is not just a science and microchips act; it's also a blue sky energy transition, clean energy act. So it contains sixty seven billion dollars worth of subsidy for the development of radical new energy technologies. If, if you add all of these things up, if you, and if you add in also the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed last year, which also contained modest amounts of spending on the energy transition, you, you arrive at a really quite a radical conclusion, which is that over the next decade, the federal government in the United States will be spending about $80 billion a year, um, which is three times as much as it spent in the previous decade, on renewable technologies. Um, renewable energy technologies, that is. So that's a very significant commitment. Is it enough to to drive the energy transition? Well, will time will tell. Uh, broadly speaking, we think the investment needs to be substantially larger than that. But it's unprecedented historically for the government to be spending on that scale. And if you then add in the equally unprecedented and truly gigantic appropriation for the Pentagon, um, so microchips, green technology, infrastructure and military spending, the American government machine does increasingly look as though its main thrust of economic policy in this current moment, apart from the anti-inflation drive, which is going to be led by the Fed, uh, which has a fiscal component, the main component of economic policy, constructive component, is going to be this industrial policy. Um, It's important, however, I think, also to not romanticise or exaggerate the extent of agency, of freedom of action that the government machine has in promoting industrial policy. I mean, the way industrial policy de facto works in the United States in the current moment is that it's negotiated, as it is, say, around the Pentagon with the military industrial complex. Well, we have something like a tech industrial complex, which is clustered around the CHIPS Act, um, and drives that as much as it is government technocrats and experts who set the agenda. It's to a very large extent, of course, Intel, which tells the government what it needs to build a you know, new, absolutely spanking, high technology uh, chip plant. It, 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 to have a fab, no one in the, no one in Washington knows what's necessary for that. Certainly not at the level that the chip manufacturers themselves do. So what we're seeing here is a new kind of the creation of a whole series of new intertwined complexes of political subsidy, state power, and um, and high-tech firms. And to that extent, one way of reading the significance of the, of the, the energy transition, so the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, which is really a, a green energy transition bill, is that it marks the moment at which, for the first time, a sufficiently powerful coalition of interests has emerged around green energy in the United States to demand its own industrial policy. It's the tipping point where the balance between fossil fuel interests and renewable energy interests in the United States became much harder to call than it has previously been because, you know, all the way up to this point in history, you would have said the fossil fuel interests completely dominated. That was also the story that many of us were, you know, preparing to write or indeed wrote uh, in the two preceding weeks when it seemed as though Manchin, the coal baron, has sunk the whole deal. And over the following two weeks then, that green energy coalition really came to the fore. And that may, in retrospect, turn out to be the real historic significance of this moment. Okay, so <clears throat> goodbye, Green New Deal, it sounds like. That policy is over for the United yes, States, exactly. but yep. hello, green industrial complex <laughs> joining the military. Okay, that does sound like a new era indeed. But we do need to leave it here for now. We will be right back, though, to talk about post-war reconstruction.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is $1 trillion. That's how much it's going to take to rebuild Ukraine after its war with Russia. That's according to the European Investment Bank. The European Union is planning to establish a fund to finance reconstruction. I think Russia is the first country that will be on the line to help reconstruct Ukraine, and there will be different ways to discuss all this. Uh, of course, this is... Of course, reconstruction is the flip side of the destruction of all-out war of the kind that Ukraine and Russia are engaged in right now. And of course, we've seen this process before. In fact, we're seeing it ongoing right now in Syria, which was the most recent devastating war prior to Ukraine. The estimates there for reconstructing Syria are around $400 billion. So we thought we'd look at this whole question of reconstruction in general and as applied to these two wars. So, Adam... Just to clarify the basic terms here, you don't reconstruct until there's some stop to fighting, right? I mean, or are there types of reconstruction that happen as the war is ongoing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a question of semantics here for sure. I mean, is it really reconstruction if you're in a war and you risk having everything destroyed again? I mean, doesn't reconstruction imply the idea of restoration, of some sense of normality that you're putting back together again? And I think to that extent, everyone agrees that reconstruction can only really begin when we get to some sort of durable peace. And, and that seems a distant prospect. 
And because it does seem a distant prospect, we actually have to start, Ukraine actually has to do start doing something now urgently, and its allies want to support that. So de facto, we are already involved in various types of efforts to rebuild the functioning of the Ukrainian economy in key respects, even if we cannot really talk about full-on reconstruction at this point. Many of those efforts centre on the most urgent tasks from the point of view of the world economy and indeed from the point of view of Ukraine's exports, which is to rescue the harvest of 2022 as best as is possible. So this involves um, things like um, building temporary silos, grain silos on the Polish border to secure the harvest, to protect it, building um, temporary pontoon bridges and other vital infrastructure to enable transport. So that's one element. There is also a vital element of residential reconstruction in that millions of people have been displaced, um, hundreds of thousands of homes have been destroyed. And in areas where violence has sufficiently subsided, it's clearly urgent to start providing at least various forms of temporary accommodation, which, as we know from the experience both of refugees um, in recent years, but also going back to the experience of World War II with the famous Nissen huts made out of corrugated iron, those temporary accommodations can in the end be inhabited for many years, if not decades. And that kind of reconstruction work needs to start in Ukraine immediately to provide people with, with housing in country uh, rather than forcing them to become refugees. And there is always, of course, as soon as you start engaging in these sorts of temporary makeshift you do reasonably, of course, have to ask yourself, what is our long-term strategy? And so into the conversation about temporary makeshift measures have already entered the criteria of Ukraine's long-run reconstruction, which include much more far-reaching objectives, the whole reform, the anti-corruption agenda, and ultimately, of course, the horizon of EU membership now, which is uh, Ukraine's long-run ambition. So we're seeing a process right now in northern Syria, where Turkey, the neighboring country, is investing in territories it controls in northern Syria. And we're kind of seeing a similar process in Crimea, where territory that Russia annexed several years ago and has been investing in since then. And I'm curious, does does economic investment of this kind do anything to like legitimate the control over these disputed territories? Is economic reconstruction a kind of irreversible political fact on the ground that then needs to be taken into account afterwards? This is a really fascinating question. I mean, this phrase you use, fact on the ground, is very telling because that is a phrase habitually used ever since the late 1960s in the context of uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict and the question of the status of Israeli settlements because the strategy of the Israeli state has been since 67 to, quote unquote, create facts on the ground by way of large-scale settlement. And the purpose of the informal settlers, the illegal settlers, um, is to do the same. And the remarkable thing is that in doing so, I mean, they not only, as it were, create sociological conditions, they build communities, which it's hard to shift, they build political alliances, they create a kind of irreversibility. But remarkably, they also have at least a sort of residual link to the law, um, because under the terms of so-called adverse possession, which is really the codification of the idea that possession is nine-tenths of the law, which seems at some level like a scandalous idea, but practically every legal code in the world, in fact, confers on the occupants of territory who invest in it and quote-unquote improve it various types mm. of legal right. Not just, as it were, the, the, the fact of having built a community which is unimaginable to tear down, 
But um, indeed, some sort of legal claim can be established through this kind of mechanism. Uh, that, of course, is arguable and debatable, and, and different sides in, in contested uh, zones like this will, of course, go literally, they will die on that hill. They will fight to the death to either assert or deny the legitimacy of that claim. But it cannot be denied that in current international law, that kind of action does at least potentially establish a claim you know, settler colonial states all over the world uh, originate in precisely that kind of claim, creating facts on the ground, expelling the local population, settling, cultivating, establishing a new regime. And it is ultimately, however, a question of power. And it's a question of how long you can stay there. It's a question of how large the facts are that you create on the ground. And it's a race to that extent against time and against your enemies. And in Crimea, I think it's virtually impossible now to imagine the expulsion of Russia from Crimea. I don't know whether Turkey's mounting investment in northern Syria is really going to give it that kind of position or whether Russia is going to be able to extend its claims on Ukraine by a similar mechanism. But it's hard to deny de facto, and it's rather mysterious, really, because on the face of it, you know, you'd say, how on earth can this establish legitimacy? But there those clauses are in virtually every legal code in the world. Hmm. So, I mean, if we were to look at Russia's expansion into eastern Ukraine, just in a material sense, is that potential annexation something that Russia can even afford? And then I guess on the flip side, what would it mean for those territories of eastern Ukraine? Would that condemn them to a kind of indefinite period of economic neglect and stagnation as a kind of backwater of a Russian country? Well, in the zones of Ukraine's territory, which have so far fallen under Russian influence, we have, as it were, two different polar opposite experiences. So on the one hand, we have the Donbass region, which even before the invasion of the rest of Ukraine this year was obviously largely under Russian control or to a considerable part under Russian control and was a zone of considerable impoverishment, informal improvised economics, heavily reliant on just cash subsidies from Russia. The Russians were in the business of extending Russian citizenship to people living there. Broadly speaking, these were disintegrated, incoherent, dysfunctional economic zones. And then there was Crimea. And Crimea was flat out the second most rapidly growing part of the Russian economy, if you're willing Mm. to describe it as that. Crimea was the recipient of $13 billion of Russian investment between uh, 2015 and 2022. Unsurprisingly, therefore, it was an incredibly rapid growing part of the Russian economy. It's an extremely attractive part of the world. It's a traditional holiday and tourist destination. And those are two rather different visions, I think, of what a long-term Russian occupation and claim to large parts of Ukrainian territory could look like. I think it's difficult to imagine the full Crimean model being extended to the Donbass region. But if we were at similar levels of funding, we would be talking about spending on the Russian part of, you know, maybe $20 billion, uh, something like that, scaling up from the population of Crimea to the population of Donbass region as it was before the war. Uh, Can Russia absorb that? Yes, it can. There's no doubt. I mean, if it did spend that kind of money, it's hard to imagine it wouldn't generate some kind of economic growth. The real rub, I think, is what it does to the rest of Russia. So not so much as it were, if you know, if you target the kind of money they targeted on Crimea, can you create a hotspot of growth? Yes, you can. But what do you lose in the process of doing that? And what public services get that get cut in the rest of Russia? What other kinds of investment which might yield much higher rates of return than these politically driven projects uh, would you be foregoing? And I think that's where the real questions are. How much is this going to cost not as it were the region per se, but Russia as a whole. To turn to reconstruction, I guess, within more recognized boundaries of these states, 
I mean, war is obviously a situation where questions of nationalism, identity, culture, you know, those kind of gain salience over basic economic questions of material interest and, and maximizing interest in that way. So how does that express itself in reconstruction efforts? Are kind of national firms privileged in reconstruction tenders? Do government services maybe place a renewed emphasis on national language, national culture, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I mean, you can do reconstruction using Ukrainian firms. You can do reconstruction using Ukraine's allies in cooperative partnerships. You can also, however, if you actually get reparations going, require Russian companies to do the reconstruction for you, essentially for free, or at the expense of the Russian government. Where does Russia stand in all of this is really quite an interesting question, because the the in the end, of course, many people imagine that Russia is going to pay reparations and is going to fund this. And certainly the Poles and Ukrainians fondly imagine that they're going to impound the assets of Russian oligarchs and other Russian interests in the West and use that to fund these partnerships of Ukrainian and Polish firms, which will then do reconstruction in Ukraine. And certainly after World War I, that is how quite a lot of reconstruction in Belgium uh, was done, um, was by German companies who were paid by the German government to do reconstruction work in Belgium as part of the reparations deal. So all three of those kind of mm. constellations are imaginable. I think it's in practice extremely unlikely mm. that any Russian company will ever benefit. But if you're not going to do that, you have to ask yourself exactly how are you going to get your hands on Russian goodies to to make the Russians pay. Now, Russia, of course, can oil export oil, it can export gas, but we know what kind of leverage they can exert by doing that. So it will be interesting to see how, how this plays out. Hmm. Yeah, I guess there hasn't been much <laughs> work on this sort of question of reparations and how, how to actually make that work in practice. To end here, you mentioned the hopes of Ukraine to access aid from the West and reconstructing itself. But I'm curious about a country that doesn't have access to either that aid or to fossil fuels like Russia does to export and earn money for any potential reconstruction. If we look at Syria, how exactly has it managed to reconstruct itself despite still being cut off from much of the world politically? What does it do to reconstruct in that case? No, it hasn't. I mean, that's the shocking and awful truth about Syria, right, is that there isn't a plan, really, because of the way in which the war ended with Assad's regime having not only survived but largely crushed the opposition. The areas where reconstruction in a conventional sense are happening are those which are outside Assad's control, so in the Kurdish uh, and Turkish-controlled parts in the north. But the rest of the country remains largely in the extraordinarily devastated um, state that it was in, left in as a result of the war. So a city like Aleppo, which was once the largest city in, in Syria and a great economic hub for the entire region, where fighting ended essentially six years ago when Assad, with the backing of the Russians, established control in an extraordinarily brutal campaign of urban warfare and total destruction of large parts of the city with barrel bombs and you know all of the nightmarish modes of fighting which, with which we became familiar, essentially remains in a largely ruined state. There has been very little reconstruction because Assad's sponsors basically, and most importantly, the Russians have shown little interest in doing reconstruction. And instead, what's emerged is a kind of criminal, militia, parasitic economy in which favoured groups within the regime prey on what little business activity re-emerges. And the population that's left has, has become increasingly dependent on 
more or less adequate um, supplies of both bread and essential fuels, which are rationed by political mechanisms within within the regime. And so there is a hierarchy of more or less favoured groups. So the conditions for economic growth in what was once, you know, historically all the way back to, you know, ancient civilizations as being one of the great cradles of commerce, you know, cities like Aleppo have been reduced to a shadow of their, their former selves. I mean, if you look at the satellite imagery of the illumination of a city like Aleppo, um, which was once, you know, as one would imagine, a great bright spot that you could see from outer space. Um, Aleppo today is dark at night because there's, there's no power. And the most shocking fact is that, um, you know, right now there is in fact a lively trade uh, amongst film studios in the use of Syria's ruined cities as the backdrop for um, disaster movies, military movies, action movies. Um, there's been a series of recent protests because um, a co-production by Emirati and Chinese um, filmmakers who are actually filming a film about the Chinese intervention in Yemen to rescue Chinese nationals in Yemen, but uh, Yemen is far too dangerous to shoot a film, have cut a deal with the Assad regime to film in ruined cities in Syria controlled by Assad's regime. So we're really talking about the commercialization of destruction as the kind of ground zero, the lowest ebb of economic activity um, that one can imagine. That is a kind of dystopia. Wow. Reconstruction is not a guaranteed process at all, it sounds like. And then, yeah, to be reduced to using your destruction as an asset is not where anyone, I'm sure, wants to ever end up. But, yeah, we should leave this conversation here. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. 
I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.